The Essays of Francis Bacon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Essays of Francis Bacon. Essay 27. Of Friendship. It had been hard for him that spake it to have put more truth and untruth together in few words than in that speech, whatsoever is delighted in solitude is either a wild beast or a god. For it is most true that a natural and secret hatred and aversation towards society in any man hath somewhat of the savage beast. But it is most untrue that it should have any character at all of the divine nature. Except it proceed, not out of a pleasure in solitude, but out of a love and desire to sequester a man's self for a higher conversation, such as is found to have been falsely and feignedly in some of the heathen, as Epimenides the Candian, Numa the Roman, Empedocles the Sicilian, and Apollonius of Tyana. And truly and really in diverse of the ancient hermits and holy fathers of the church. But little do men perceive what solitude is, and how far it extendeth. For a crowd is not company, and faces are but a gallery of pictures, and talk but a tinkling symbol where there is no love. The Latin adage meeteth with it a little. Magna civitas, magna solitudo. Because in a great town friends are scattered, so that there is not that fellowship for the most part which is in less neighborhoods. But we may go further and affirm most truly that it is a mere and miserable solitude to want true friends, without which the world is but a wilderness. And even in this sense also of solitude, whosoever in the frame of his nature and affections is unfit for friendship, he taketh it of the beast and not from humanity. A principal fruit of friendship is the ease and discharge of the fullness and swellings of the heart, which passions of all kinds do cause and induce. We know diseases of stoppings and suffocations are the most dangerous in the body, and it is not much otherwise in the mind. You may take sarza to open the liver, steel to open the spleen, flowers of sulfur for the lungs, castorium for the brain but no receipt openeth the heart, but a true friend, to whom you may impart griefs, joys, fears, hopes, suspicions, counsels, and whatsoever lieth upon the heart to oppress it, in a kind of civil shrift or confession. It is a strange thing to observe how high a rate great kings and monarchs do set upon this fruit of friendship whereof we speak so great as they purchase it many times at the hazard of their own safety and greatness. For princes, in regard of the distance of their fortune from that of their subjects and servants, cannot gather this fruit except, to make themselves capable thereof, they raise some persons to be, as it were, companions and almost equals to themselves, which many times sorteth to inconvenience. The modern languages give unto such persons the name of favorites or privados, as if it were a matter of grace or conversation. But the Roman name attaineth the true use and cause thereof, naming them participes curarum. For it is that which tieth the knot, 
and we see plainly that this hath been done, not by weak and passionate princes only, but by the wisest and most politic that ever reigned, who have oftentimes joined to themselves some of their servants, whom both themselves have called friends, and allowed other likewise to call them in the same manner, using the word which is received between private men. El Silla, when he commanded Rome, raised Pompey, after surnamed the Great, to that height that Pompey vaunted himself for Silla's overmatch. For when he had carried the consulship for a friend of his against the pursuit of Silla, and that Silla did a little resent the threat, and began to speak great, Pompey turned upon him again, and in effect bade him be quiet, for that more men adored the sun rising than the sun setting. With Julius Caesar, Decimus Brutus had attained that interest as he set him down in his testament for heir and remainder after his nephew, and this was the man that had power with him to draw him forth to his death. For when Caesar would have discharged the Senate in regard of some ill presages, and especially of a dream of Calpurnia, this man lifted him gently by the arm out of his chair, telling him he hoped he would not dismiss the Senate till his wife had dreamt a better dream. And it seemeth his favor was so great as Antonius, in a letter which is recited verbatim in one of Cicero's Philippics, called him Venefica, which as if he had enchanted Caesar. Augustus raised Agrippa, though of mean birth, to that height as when he consulted with Maecenas about the marriage of his daughter Julia, Maecenas took the liberty to tell him that he must either marry his daughter to Agrippa or take away his life. There was no third way. He had made him so great. With Tiberius Caesar, Sejanus had ascended to that height, as they too were termed, and reckoned as a pair of friends. Tiberius, in a letter to him, saith, Hac pro amicitia nostra non occult avi. And the whole senate dedicated an altar to friendship as to a goddess in respect of the great dearness of friendship between them two. The like or more was between Septimius Severus and Plotianus. For he forced his eldest son to marry the daughter of Plotianus, and would often maintain Plotianus in doing affronts to his son, and did write also in a letter to the Senate by these words, I love the man so well as I wish he may overlive me. Now if these princes had been as Trajan or Marcus Aurelius, a man might have thought that this had proceeded of an abundant goodness of nature. But being men so wise, of such strength and severity of mind, and so extreme lovers of themselves as all these were, it proveth most plainly that they found their own felicity, though as great as ever happened to mortal men, but as an half-peace, except they might have a friend to make it entire. And yet, which is more, they were princes that had wives, sons, nephews." and yet all these could not supply the comfort of friendship. It is not to be forgotten what Comenius observed of his master, Duke Charles the Hardy, namely, that he would communicate his secrets with none, and least of all those secrets which troubled him most. Whereupon he goeth on, and saith that towards his latter time, that closeness did impair, and a little perish his understanding. Surely Comenius might have made the same judgment also if it had pleased him of his second master, Louis the Eleventh, 
whose closeness was indeed his tormentor. The parable of Pythagoras is dark but true. Cor ni edito, eat not the heart. Certainly, if a man would give it a hard phrase, those that want friends to open themselves unto are cannibals of their own hearts. But one thing is most admirable, wherewith I will conclude this first fruit of friendship, which is, that the communicating of a man's self to his friend works two contrary effects. For it redoubleth joys, and cutteth griefs in halves. For there is no man that imparteth his joys to his friend, but he joyeth the more. And no man that imparteth his griefs to his friend, but he grieveth the less. So that it is in truth of operation upon a man's mind, of like virtue as the alchemists used to attribute to their stone for man's body that it worketh all contrary effects, but still to the good and benefit of nature. But yet, without praying in aid of alchemists, there is a manifest image of this in the ordinary course of nature. For in bodies union strengtheneth and cherisheth any natural action, and on the other side weakeneth and dulleth any violent impression, and even so it is of minds. The second fruit of friendship is healthful and sovereign for the understanding, as the first is for the affections. For friendship maketh indeed a fair day in the affections from storm and tempests, but it maketh daylight in the understanding out of darkness and confusion of thoughts. Neither is this to be understood only of faithful counsel, which a man receiveth from his friend, but before you come to that, certain it is, that whosoever hath his mind fraught with many thoughts, his wits and understanding do clarify and break up in the communicating and discoursing with another. He tosseth his thoughts more easily, he marshalleth them more orderly, he seeth how they look when they are turned into words. Finally, he waxeth wiser than himself, and that more by an hour's discourse than by a day's meditation. It was well said by Themistocles to the king of Persia that speech was like cloth of Eris, opened and put abroad, whereby the imagery doth appear in figure, whereas in thoughts they lie but as in packs. Neither is this second fruit of friendship in the opening the understanding restrained only to such friends as are able to give a man counsel. They indeed are best, but even without that, a man learneth of himself, and bringeth his own thoughts to light, and wetteth his wits as against a stone which cuts itself not. In a word, a man were better relate himself to a statua or picture than to suffer his thoughts to pass in smother. And now, to make this second fruit of friendship complete, that other point which lieth more open and falleth within vulgar observation, which is faithful counsel from a friend. Heraclitus saith, well, in one of his enigmas, dry light is ever the best. And certain it is that the light that a man receiveth by counsel from another is drier and purer than that which cometh from his own understanding and judgment which is ever infused and drenched in his affections and customs. So as there is as much difference between the counsel that a friend giveth and that a man giveth himself, as there is between the counsel of a friend and of a flatterer. For there is no such flatterer as is a man's self, and there is no such remedy against flattery of a man's self as the liberty of a friend. 
Counsel is of two sorts, the one concerning manners, the other concerning business. For the first, the best preservative to keep the mind in health is the faithful admonition of a friend. The calling of a man's self to a strict account is a medicine, sometime too piercing and corrosive. Reading good books of morality is a little flat and dead. Observing our faults in others is sometimes improper for our case. But the best receipt, best, I say, to work and best to take, is the admonition of a friend. It is a strange thing to behold what gross errors and extreme absurdities many, especially of the greater sort, do commit, for want of a friend to tell them of them to the great damage both of their fame and fortune. For, as St. James saith, they are as men that look sometimes into a glass and presently forget their own shape and favor. As for business, a man may think if he win that two eyes see no more than one, or that a gamester seeth always more than a looker-on, or that a man in anger is as wise as he that hath said over the four and twenty letters or that a musket may be shot off as well upon the arm as upon a rest, and such other fond and high imaginations to think himself all in all. But when all is done, the help of good counsel is that which setteth business straight. And if any man think that he will take counsel, but it shall be by pieces, asking counsel in one business of one man, and in another business of another man, it is well that is to say, better, perhaps, than if he asked none at all, but he runneth two dangers, one, that he shall not be faithfully counseled, for it is a rare thing, except it be from a perfect and entire friend, to have counsel given, but such as shall be bowed and crooked to some ends which he hath that giveth it, the other, that he shall have counsel given hurtful and unsafe, though with good meaning, and mixed partly of mischief and partly of remedy." Even as if you would call a physician that is thought good for the cure of the disease you complain of, but is unacquainted with your body, and therefore may put you in a way for a present cure, but overthroweth your health in some other kind, and so cure the disease and kill the patient. But a friend that is wholly acquainted with a man's estate will beware, by furthering any present business how he dasheth upon other inconvenience. And therefore, rest not upon scattered counsels. They will rather distract and mislead than settle and direct. After these two noble fruits of friendship, peace in the affections and support of the judgment, followeth the last fruit, which is like the pomegranate full of many kernels. I mean aid and bearing a part in all actions and occasions. Here the best way to represent to life the manifold use of friendship is to cast and see how many things there are which a man cannot do himself. And then it will appear that it was a sparing speech of the ancients to say that a friend is another himself, for that a friend is far more than himself. Men have their time, and die many times in desire of some things which they principally take to heart the bestowing of a child, the furnishing of a work, or the like. If a man have a true friend, he may rest almost secure that the care of those things will continue after him, so that a man hath, as it were, two lives in his desires. A man hath a body, and that body is confined to a place. But where friendship is, all offices of life are as it were granted to him and his deputy. 
for he may exercise them by his friend. How many things are there which a man cannot with any face or comeliness say or do himself? A man can scarce allege his own merits with modesty, much less extol them. A man cannot sometimes brook to supplicate or beg, and a number of the like. But all these things are graceful in a friend's mouth, which are blushing in a man's own. So again, a man's person hath many proper relations which he cannot put off. A man cannot speak to his son but as a father, to his wife but as a husband, to his enemy but upon terms, whereas a friend may speak as the case requires, and not as it sorteth with the person. But to enumerate these things were endless. I have given the rule where a man cannot fitly play his own part. If he have not a friend, he may quit the stage.